Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. I first met today's guest, Tom Campbell, at a workshop that the two of us and his dad, T. Colin Campbell, were giving at a Kripalu Yoga Center. And the thing that struck me about Tom right away was how low-key he was about presenting the evidence and how utterly persuasive he was, especially to the folks who came who were sort of dragged there. You know, in in any group like that, there are people who are gung-ho and maybe they bring a spouse or a friend that they're trying to save. And most of us in the movement are really good at preaching to the choir. And Tom is no exception. He's great in front of plant-based audiences, but his unique skill is he can speak to people for whom this is all foreign or a load of hooey or new age BS, or yeah, maybe it works, but I ain't going there. And he is able to reach them to get them to drop their defenses. And I just think he's one of the most powerful voices in the plant-based movement because of his ability to do that. And luckily for everyone, uh, he's a doctor. He was originally um, going to be an actor when uh, the, the phone call came from home from, uh, from Colin and Karen, his wife, saying, hey, can you help dad write this book? And which, of course, turned into The China Study, um, one of the best-selling books on nutritional science ever and certainly uh, the most science-based. And from there, he, um, well, you'll, you'll hear the story in our conversation. Um, but luckily for us, as I said, he's a doctor and he can reach out to other doctors and he can have conversations that the rest of us can't have, both by virtue of his um, collegial relationship as a physician and also because of the way he talks. So I hope that comes out in this conversation. And without any further ado, welcome, Tom. Thank you. So you did not grow up wanting to be um, a, a doctor or a writer about nutrition, I, I gather. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that's absolutely true. I had no um, particular interest in uh, food or nutrition or medicine. I certainly didn't think I was going to be a doctor. That wasn't even anywhere in, in, remotely in my radar. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there's a lot of people who are curious about growing up in, you know, T. Colin Campbell's house. Um, h- how old were you when he really became um, convinced that a plant-based diet was uh, a healthier one than the one he'd grown up on? You know, it, it would be um, have to be a little bit cautious because... It's interesting. I mean, my family, um, me in particular, I, we didn't really uh, discuss nutrition in any great detail as a family. So I didn't pay attention to it much. I just was growing up, you know, playing soccer, uh, hanging out with friends, doing all the normal kid stuff. Um, and it just sort of happened around me without a lot of discussion. But I think that you know, looking back on it, it, it probably was kind of a gradual transition sometime in the 1980s, in the, in the second half of the 1980s. Um, we had gone to England for a year. Uh, my dad was on sabbatical at Oxford University, and so we lived there for a year. And um, My parents remember seeing a lot of the uh, meat in the open markets and stuff, and they, and they just started eating less of it around that time. 
in the mid eighties and then it kind of accelerated over the next five years. So I think the nutrition, you know, the, the point where the nutrition started translating into actual action was sometime in the, in the late eighties. Um, but it wasn't really a family discussion from what I remember. Uh huh. So, cause I, I'm, I'm remembering when I read the China study. So, you know, this is, this is half your fault. Yeah. And, like our, yeah. our, our dinner table turned into a battleground because, you know, I was I, I had seen the light and I was the only one remotely right. interested in this. So that that wasn't your experience that, uh, you know, after some particularly, um, um, you know, revealing um, study or, or data set, you know, your dad didn't come home and then lay down the law. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's really interesting that you point that out, actually, because it was... Uh, you know, as we describe in the China study, and every time we we can describe this, our point of view is really from an accumulation of many different types of evidence from many different researchers over many years, and so it never was um, a light switch changing. I think for my dad, I think it was an accumulation of all of his laboratory research. You know, decades of findings that were proving to be remarkably interesting and consistent. And then the China study results sort of started coming back the late 80s, um, which was consistent. And then you start looking around, you start, I think you start looking around at other uh, evidence in the literature. And it really was that sort of organic uh, buildup, you know, that accumulation of evidence that this slowly, and it, and it wasn't just overnight, but slowly, I think, um, my parents and my my uh, dad and my mom decided to, you know, walk the walk, so to speak. You know, this was the information that was building up. Let's start doing it. And so it was sort of a, a slow, a slow thing. Uh, so, so maybe I, I should have read the China study over fifteen years, and it would have been, it would have been a little easier on my family. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe over uh, five years or three, three years, perhaps. <laughs> So, so you you were off. I believe you were in Chicago uh, pursuing acting when I was. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I was. I was. I was in Chicago pursuing acting. My dad and my mom called me up. Dad wanted to write a book for the public, but he hadn't been doing any writing for the public, and he needed someone to help sort of organize, keep him on task, and edit. You know, uh, and and put the thoughts, string the thoughts together uh, for the public. So I agreed to do that, thinking it would take about a year. Um, but of course, it took much longer. It took us about three and a half years uh, to finish the manuscript and um, became much, much more involved. I became much more involved in the process than I thought I would. Uh, you know, at the beginning, being an editor, you're sort of reflecting what someone else is giving you. But as the process went on, I ended up getting more and more into the research and the discussion and and uh, the story, so that you know I ended up writing uh, some of the original um, text and with with my review of the literature, with discussions back and forth, integrating his writing, and I became much more integrated into the process. And you know, it was really uh, it was quite a quite a wonderful thing actually looking back on it. Boy, that sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so, so from at, at what point did you start to feel personal ownership? Were there because for for me in working on a whole, I, it was exactly the same uh, invitation to kind of edit and and clean up a manuscript, and I said yes because you know I I adore your dad and his work, and it was incredibly you know it felt like an honor to to be to be part of of, of working with him, but. Like I had to overcome a lot of um, personal career conflicts to do it. Like I said, this isn't what I do for a living. This isn't my career. This is kind of a uh, you know putting things on hold. But at a certain point, I remember like reading bits of the manuscript and running out to tell my family, like, "Oh my God, you won't believe this." Was 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 that kind of how? Were there like tidbits or like how did you start to get gain? ownership over the concepts? Well, I, I don't know that I ever have taken sort of full ownership. And, and I don't, I mean, I say full, I know you're not asking about full, quote unquote, full ownership, but um, yeah. I, I think from the very beginning, I knew that my dad had a special story to tell that a lot of people needed to hear. Um, you know, he had been communicating with people in the public who had sort of been very passionate, you know, sort of in the niche nutrition crowd who um, heard of this researcher and some of the plant-based idea. But it was a very, 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 very small audience, sort of a niche audience, Um, at least as the public was concerned. Of course, he'd been speaking to the scientific world for for decades. But um, so he really had a powerful story. And when I started, it was, and, and even through the whole process, it was always his story and his uh, his ideas and, and his, the evolution of his thought. Um, you know, and I think that it, remain that it remains that way today. But when I really got involved in some of the original writing of, of some of the chapters, even some of the chapters with some of the a little bit more based in science uh, or medicine, um, you know, certainly as far as the book, you know, as far as as far as you take this story of my dad and you put it, make it into a book form, I do feel some ownership over the, over the form, you know, uh, over the book, <laughs> at least, of, uh, of, of making it into a book. And I think it was just a gradual thing over, I mean, gosh, we, we had these deadlines and the amount of work that went into it. You know, you, just, you can't put three and a half years of full-time work, that much work, and emotional work and, 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 and sort of the, the arguments that we had then the, you know, the, the things that we would fight for, for, from our separate opinions, um, you just can't put that much into it without taking, feeling some ownership. So in that sense, I feel some ownership over the fact that there's this book, you know, that there's this, the China study that that's done really well. I know I had a strong hand in that, but, um, from the very beginning and, and forever, it's really, it's really my dad's uh, story, his career, his research, and so that that's uh, and, uh, as it should be. You know, it was a, it was really a, a privilege to to help him bring that to the world. Yeah, and I guess I guess by ownership, I think I I, uh, I misspoke a little bit. I, I sort of for for myself, it felt like this all at some point became really important to me, like beyond beyond what I had originally signed up for, that all of a sudden that my, uh, own, my own identity was wrapped up in, 
in, in fleshing out these concepts and uh, and bringing them to the world. I, I yeah, I see I see what you mean, and uh, you know I think as far as it becoming my own, yeah, I, I see exactly what you mean. When, as far as it becoming my own personal um, passion or goal. Um, I can't put a finger on it. I think it was just towards the end of it. I was wondering, well, there's all this amazing information that has power to help a lot of people. I looked around me. No one seems to know it and everyone needs to know it. Um, so I have some, there's some, something I can work on here that I would find I'm very interested and passionate, a passionate task. And how do I go about it? And, um, you know, so it, by that time I was getting into my uh, later 20s, second half of my 20s there, and I didn't, the uh, thought of going back to, some of it was just practical. <laughs> the thought, after being out of acting for four years in Ithaca, New York, um, the thought of going back and sort of starting from scratch almost again uh, in my late 20s seemed untenable, um, especially not when I had found a, uh, a different, different passion. So I ended up pursuing, I knew I could, it, it could make a life out of this. So I ended up, I ended up going that route, but it was sometime, you know, you, you cannot, you cannot read hundreds and thousands of abstracts and studies and, and see the results um, from these studies and then not think to yourself like, wow, uh, this is, people need to know this, and it's absolutely crucial, both for individuals and, and for our society, our country. And um, as, soon as, you, as soon as you start feeling that day in and day out, then yeah, it becomes hard for it not to become a passion, really. Mm. So at, at what point did you decide that medical school was going to be your your path? Because there, there, were, there were a lot of other paths that would have been equally obvious Given your 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 interest in in spreading the word, in developing the work, in in talking about the role of food and and uh, human well being, why why medicine? Well, I had um, done an undergraduate uh, bachelor of arts sort of general degree in theater, and during the process of uh, writing the book, I had gone back and taken college level chemistry and biology just just through my realizing that I was reading a lot and, and that might be useful and interesting. So I did that. And after finishing the book, I knew I needed additional formal training. So I thought either a PhD or the other option was to go the clinical route and, and consider medicine. And I was at a conference in California with my dad and uh, Caldwell Esselstyn was sitting there and I asked him about this dilemma. Should I go to PhD or MD? And I I'd always been sort of leaning toward a PhD because I had a lot of friends in Ithaca who were PhDs. And, uh, of course, it's a lot of work. It's a long road. But um, it seems more doable to me, um, consistent with a healthy uh, life <laughs> than, than medical school. Um, and uh, and I said, you know, I, I'm now here getting to my late 20s, which is, of course, still pretty young, but it, it, just to start fresh like that. I'm in my late 20s. It's going to absolutely consume my life. It's an awful lot of work. It's a big change, and I'm not I'm not really quite sure about medical a medical degree. And Dr. Esselstyn looked at me and he said, um, or, or, no, I'm sorry. I said to him specifically, I said to him, it just seems 
like it's going to be an awful lot of work. And he looked at me and he, and he said, well, so what? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, if if people who know him know that's absolutely classic Esselstyn, you know, his whole family, the Esselstyn family. So I, I think, um, that was sort of a transformative question. And I thought, well, you know, I've got a lot of, uh, a lot of time to, to work on this. I might as well put the effort in and, and, and go that route. And, and as he said, and I talked to many others, you know, a medical degree opens up some doors and, um, uh, it has, it's, it's, it's been, not only has it been useful for me to pursue my passion, but actually the edu- the education that I've gotten has rounded out my knowledge in ways that I never could have fathomed when I started out. And, and it just really has uh, been tremendously useful. Mm. Well, one of the, one of the things that really struck me upon uh, meeting you was that I kind of had this vision of, you know, the, the co-author of the China study goes to medical school with, with an agenda and he, you know, he's going to come out prescribing carrots and broccoli for everything, you know, you know, maybe, maybe short of a, of a car accident, you know, and, and yet right. in, in talking to you, you really went in, it seems very open, very willing and, and really eager to learn from, from the medical profession kind of in spite of the fact that there's a lot of um, criticism of the medical profession in the China study. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you have to be, uh, appreciate a little bit um, what you don't know. And uh, quite frankly, for all of us, what we don't know um, will permanently and forever uh, totally dwarf what we know. <laughs> um, and with that in mind, you have to, you, so you have to leave your mind open a little bit and going to medical school, uh, and simply succeeding enough to pass the boards, you know, finish year one, finish year two, finish third year, the clinical rounds is just an all consuming task. I mean, it's, it's, you sink or swim, and whether you like it or not, it doesn't matter too much. There's not a whole lot of chance for um, individual structuring of that education. It's sort of, it's a, it's a very strong uh, molding machine, and it's all-consuming. So I don't know that my, I don't know that I ever uh, had a mental approach. I, I never really had the luxury of of a personal mental approach that affected my um, behavior, to be honest. I mean, uh, you, you just, you start from day one saying, this is what you have to do. Here's what the test is going to be on. And, and you're just struggling to, uh, to, to get through, um, not struggling, but just working full time to, to just, just to stay afloat really. Mm. So what were the first things that you encountered in your medical school education that that felt significant? Like they were really going to, um, you know, going to change the way you saw the world or, or inform who you were going to become? Well, I think from day one, you sort of realize that this is going to be a transformative process. People tell you flat out, this is going to be a transformative process. And 
I don't know that it relates to nutrition so much, but, you know, the first day that you're in anatomy lab and there's a uh, a dead patient in front of you and uh, you're standing around there uh, all with scalpels and you're told to, you know, cut cut up the cut up this uh, uh, dead patient in certain ways, um, you realize that you're doing something, uh, you know, a little, a little, a little unique <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and quite, and quite powerful. Uh, and, 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 uh, there's sort of an importance, um, I guess a feeling of importance. So I think that very early on, you you just, it demands so much work, anything that demands so much commitment and so much work and, and where you're, you're put in positions of enormous responsibility, um, demanding incredible knowledge and, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's impossible not to be, not to realize that this is going to be transform your life from almost from day one. Um, but, you know, I think where it, it really takes a step up is even after medical school in residency, when I did my family medicine residency, I, uh, you know, then you're a, you're a doctor and you're supervised, but as you go through residency, you're less and less supervised, and you take more and more individual responsibility. And um, I think when you, as a doctor, I heard this this great story of um, someone put it so well, one of my former teachers put it so well, when she was just talking to the graduating medical students, and she said, you know, there's uh, a code on the hospital floor in one of the patient rooms, a code you know, an urgent, life-threatening emergency, the code bells go off. And she was, um, back in the day, she was an, an intern. And she ran out of the room and started looking up and down the hall, wondering, you know, when is the help going to get here? And then it suddenly help is suddenly here. Uh, I am the help. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, you're put in, in situations like that. And, um, there's just uh there's nothing quite like it um uh so it's transformative in in uh in ways you know in a very traditional way of medical school it's transformative to have experiences like that um but uh it 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 didn't it never really i'm not sure that it was particularly tied to to nutrition for most of those points actually mm-hmm. So how how did you um, eventually come to uh, connect the the nutrition expertise and experience of, of of you know reading all those thousands of papers and what I, you know what I assume was um, a, f- a fairly standard medical education on nutrition? Um, how, how did you sit in class? when your professors maybe were ignoring it or, or making light of it or, or promoting other forms of, of treatment and, and instead of it? Or, you know, how, how did you sit in class uh, and deal with that? Well, I think you have to remember that this is the marathon. Uh, this, this, uh, this journey, this issue, this struggle, this, this uh, message... It's a marathon, and it's an ultra marathon. You know, it's it's a million ultra marathons rather than a sprint. And so, um, this is a discussion and conversation that's going on for a long time. And even when I had 
moments of incredible frustration of physicians saying things that were inaccurate or, um, uh, you know, opportunities to teach students, for example, um, how nutrition is related to heart disease. And when those opportunities were just blatantly squandered or ignored or inaccurately uh, relayed, you know, uh, inaccurately explained, I had to just realize that um, as a student, you know, medicine is quite hierarchical. Um, many people may not appreciate that, but really through training, it's pretty hierarchical. And as an early student, there's just nothing to gain from my perspective, my position, or from the teacher's position, from the attending physician's position, for me to challenge them uh, directly about about the knowledge that they are teaching people. And um, that's when you have to realize that, uh, you know, it's okay. We're going to be exposed to uh, lots and lots and lots of other information. Um, this is not worth a fight at this point. It's, uh, but, but there will be opportunities in the future. And so, and that's what I've done. You know, when I got to residency, I found a very supportive residency, actually, <clears throat> that was very supportive of my interest in nutrition. Um, got a chance to give a couple grand rounds to my hospital and the entire medical staff. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I did some additional reading, some writing, uh, publishing a little bit here and there. So I, I kept my passion and my knowledge base and my interest alive and shared it where I could. But, um, you know, anybody approaching this in their own lives with, with people around them, uh, you know, not even to speak of my medical background, everyone, I think it resonates with people that you can't, it's not a, it's not a fist fight every time the argument comes up. If you turn it into a fist fight, um, it's going to just be very tremendously frustrating and not unproductive for everyone involved almost every time. So I've heard you talk about ways in which medical education could be better, could be more informed about nutrition, could be more well-rounded. I'm curious whether there are are things that you learned in medical school or residency or as a clinical practitioner that make you look at the plant-based movement and say there are things that we could be doing better in, in terms of being more accurate about our science, uh, maybe making you know fewer kind of really broad statements or ways in which we communicate? Are there things that you've brought back that can help us be uh, more effective and, and more accurate? Well, I think we have to just, uh, I don't know if it's so much the medical training I've had as much as, you know, just from my personality or actually the, the training and education I had with my dad. You know, in many ways, my dad uh, um, is, is a conservative guy. I mean, he, he was at, in a very conservative uh, uh, role in the top of the science world uh, for many decades. And when you look at the claims between food and health, you have to be careful. There's an awful lot of um, passion on every, um, just about every single position or side that you want to, you could imagine. There's an there's passion there. And um, there's a lot of wild claims. There's a lot of, there's a lot of interests, competing interests. And so the plant-based community, um, for example, uh, you know, sometimes there's this sense that, that diet will fix everything, you know, that, that you will not get disease if you eat this way. And, and why can't you just, uh, and why can't you just see that? 
you know, you dumb, you dumb world. <laughs> and it, it, uh, it, it, and with the passion and all that, and, and, and that's not quite right. You know, there, there's not quite, um, it, there's not quite the just justification for some of the, some of the more outlandish, uh, claims. And, uh, furthermore, I think there's an overlap between the, the plant-based world and a lot of the alternative uh, medical world, alternative uh, uh, world, and I, um, you know, I think that I, I think that you could you could say that you know some of the uh, f- from the alternative point of view, um, some of the sort of doctor bashing or or the uh, or the or the medicine uh, uh, bashing um, sometimes is justified, but oftentimes is not, and so you know people don't necessarily um, appreciate uh, the, the other point of view or the other side uh, when they're when they're saying things. You know, you can look, for example, on Facebook, and <laughs> Facebook, of course, is sort of, uh, on, you know, the online comment section is, is, is sort of famous for those people. But, uh, you know, there's all sorts of crazy stuff people say, and they say it with such certainty and uh, such anger <laughs> that... Uh, like anybody could could never disagree. It doesn't matter who's on the end, who's on the end giving information, and you just have to be really careful in that. But that's just that's just part of you know an adult life. I think I, I don't know that's so specific to plant based community or any other community. Um, just sort of re- realizing that that there's an awful lot you don't know, and it's uh, it's it's more interesting to engage in a discussion rather than just uh, tell people they're stupid. <laughs> Right. So when I when I heard you um, speak for the first time, my my first reaction was, "Wow, here here's a doctor that other doctors could actually listen to." Like you're you're you seem to be sort of consciously in style and also in the level of of discourse and the way you presented evidence and the way you mm-hmm. kind of downplayed, um, you know, you you presented things in a in a way that I think. A medical conference could hear and accept and take notes and nod and maybe <laughs> maybe add a couple of things to their to their practice. Is that do you, do you do that a lot? Do you talk to doctors? Well, you know, I I, I have and I do and I always enjoy doing that. Um, but one of the uh, I think my own philosophy, core philosophy that underlines that is that you can now make this argument for the importance of diet. And the importance and benefit of a specific diet, that is a whole food plant-based diet, you can make the argument for that extraordinarily compelling, even by using the strictest uh, rules of science. So there's no need to embellish or uh, start to need, start to get wild uh, with your claims. Or um, really, you can you can approach this in a fairly conservative way and come to the same conclusion. And, and my own personal point of view is that some, sometimes that conservative approach doesn't necessarily rile up the fans, but it's much, much more palatable to people who are encountering these ideas for the first time. Mm. And as it should be, I think. Uh, you know, people should have a little skepticism. So I think... Uh, uh, you know, that's that's been my belief and my approach, and um, you know, for better or worse, uh, uh, I, I I think I I think it does translate better to um, the traditional uh, traditional folks. 
Could you have a, a specific example that you could think of? Maybe a way that uh, that we tend to say it in the plant based world that's very that feels very um, hypey or untrustworthy to a you know to a crusty old doctor and and a, way, a different <laughs> well, way of saying it that they might be able to. Hear. You know, yeah, it's uh, I, I suppose in a way. Um, uh, you know, putting, putting words into imaginary mouths here. Um, you know, some someone might say uh, that you know, uh, well, person X has breast cancer. Um, you know, if they ate a plant-based diet, it would just go away. Or um, you know, no one, no one eating this way will ever get will ever get breast cancer. Uh, you know, something like that. And that will just make traditional, um, a lot of people in traditional health professions just roll their eyes and, and say, okay, all right. Um, but if you approach it in a way that looks at the evidence that says, you know, this is observationally, you know, there's an enormous range of breast cancer incidence. It's correlated with dietary fat intake, in particular animal fat, not plant fat. Okay, across cultures, and then you look at uh, uh, some within cultures. We look at some of the mechanisms. You know, some of the hormone levels uh, throughout women. We know the hormone levels are linked to um, uh, breast cancer, and we look at the growth hormones, the IGFs, and and you start to look at some of the animal experiment, animal interventional research. You look at the uh, human observational studies, and you can piece together an argument that you know, whole food plant-based diet is likely to be very important, but you don't need to say that, um, with, you know, cause we, cause we can't be that certain. We can't, we can't say these things with total certainty. You, you, you don't need to sit there and say, Oh, you know, breast cancer doesn't happen. Just if you don't, if you don't eat dairy or, um, you know, some of those absolute statements. So I, I approach, that's, I guess, one example of, of, of one thing that, that I might say a little differently than, than, um, than some people. Mm-hmm. So you, you are the director of, uh, nutrition studies.org, which is, uh, form, mm-hmm. I guess, is it still, or, or, or formerly known as the T Colin Campbell foundation? Right. It's, a, it's a full, the full name is the T T Colin Campbell, uh, center for nutrition studies. And it is the, um, same, it's, it, yeah, it's the same thing as what was the T. Colin Campbell Foundation. Great. So, so, and I've I've seen you uh, come up in various uh, Facebook feeds, and doing conferences, and a lot of uh, medical-based education. So it seems like outreach to the medical community is is an important part of of what you're up to these days. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think physicians are in an oper- in a in a position where they can be a little bit more individualistic. I mean, when you have a physician-patient relationship, it, it's fairly fairly insular, meaning that, you know, you can sort of say and do what you want as long as you're, as long as it's in the best interest of the patient. And um, so, consequently, a lot of the, I think, the health professionals who are, are returning to this nutritional way of thinking um, are actually physicians uh, are, are sort of um, turning. There's a lot of physicians out there who have turned the corner and uh, said, "Yes, this is really where we need to be thinking about." 
uh, where we need to be putting our efforts. And so as that, as that naturally happens, um, you know, it's, it's, I've had, I've just been fortunate to have opportunities to speak at some of the conferences where, where physicians are getting together. So, you know, physicians, I think actually the individual physicians out there are, are one of the great hopes that this grassroots, as this grassroots effort spreads, you know, through the, through the public, it actually, uh, it's beginning to, the physician community is beginning to seep in, um, uh, perhaps even ahead of other health professions. So it's, it's been nice. And I, I like, I enjoy all the opportunities I get to speak to physicians. Mm-hmm. So g- given all the obstacles that, that I would look at to physicians getting on board from the curriculum of medical education to the fact that I, I think the boards don't require uh, nutrition, so there's no real incentive for schools to provide it, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the influence of the pharmaceutical industry. Um, what what do you see as the, the the counter forces that are that are leading physicians to get behind a a plant based approach? Is 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 it simply that it's you know forks over knives has reached the public, and so instead of you know ask your doctor about Viagra, it's now ask your doctor about kale. <laughs> Um, you know that is a component of it. There's an there's a public level of interest over the past ten years or so that has has absolutely invaded uh, many different conversations throughout our society, including the patient physician conversation. So that is a part of it. But um, also, I think that physicians are turning to this way of thinking because every day. You know, if if you are a practicing physician working with patients in a hospital system or primary care clinic, every day, every almost every patient who comes in the door is suffering from a lifestyle-related disease. Uh, one one of their illnesses is likely lifestyle-related. I mean, it is absolutely swamping. And uh, every physician, I don't care if if they even if they don't care two twits about nutrition. They will agree that lifestyle is related to many of the illnesses they see. Um, they may not agree to, to some of the some of the diagnoses. But, you know, every day the people with diabetes, weight issues um, that that cause joint pain, arthritis, uh, the related gallbladder issues, and all sorts of things. Just all sorts of things. Um, you know, it's absolutely, it's like over and over and over and over and over in the medical system. And so physicians are, they're saying, wow, you know, here I am getting swamped with these lifestyle related problems. And guess what? These pills, uh, yeah, they, we might be kind of tinkering around the edges and having some success with some outcome, but these pills really aren't helping people get healthy. They aren't reversing anything. And when you start to have these thoughts, you're swamped by it, and then you start realizing what are the implications for actually treating the cause of these illnesses, it becomes, uh, um, you know, that's the physician's life, really. And if they're reflective and looking, looking into it, and, and they have the luxury of being exposed to the power of nutrition through something, through some, some means, you know, it becomes almost like too obvious to ignore, I think. 
Um, but a lot of physicians say, you know, it's still an ongoing struggle. <laughs> All the reasons you mentioned, it's it's a huge, huge giant struggle. But I think, I think there are a lot of physicians who who are um, are changing the t- changing their tune because of the environment that we're in. Right. I mean, one of the things that I see as a huge obstacle is the the diet that will actually help feels too extreme for physicians. And I think, you know, a, a lot of the medical profession is about a feeling of control. Like if you prescribe pills, people probably take them a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. If you prescribe surgery and the person's under the knife, they're going to get the surgery. But that, that maybe the doctors feel like they, they don't know how or that patients wouldn't accept a, a lifestyle change as drastic as cutting out most animal products and processed foods. Um, and the doctors do, really don't know how to say it kind of authoritatively enough. Do, do you find that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely a lack of knowledge and a lack of um, skills to implement this. And, and you know, I argue with this with my dad actually a lot he he's uh much more optimistic than i am and i have to tell you that a lot of people um don't want to change their diet (laughs) and i don't care if it's me saying they're gonna you know they're gonna otherwise die or or me saying they could reverse their life and and reverse all their illnesses and have a hunky-dory life get off all their pills a lot of people will look at me and say they won't they won't change their diet they just will not so um, there is a kernel of truth that people are 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 not terribly interested. Uh, a lot of people not terribly interested in um, in changing their diet. But so that's a that's a challenge. But also the physicians' lack of knowledge, um, and importantly, it's also the system. So the system does not set us up well to support behavior change. Um, we know that behavior change is dependent on things like social support, uh, people having actual skills to implement the behavior change. Okay, so skills in nutrition would be like, how do you shop? How do you cook? Um, you know, and how in the world do we even begin to broach those topics, you know, in, in a 20-minute office visit where we're also dealing with left elbow pain, um, depression, uh financial complaints, um, and, uh, diabetes and terrible arthritis, (laughs) you know, it's just, it's the system that in the system does not allow for, um, you know, good application of behavior change skills. And most depressingly, you know, it's, it doesn't even pay for that. Uh, so that, that's, I think one of the biggest barriers of all, in all of our land right now is that, you know, as a physician, for me to um, specialize or focus on helping people change their lives by changing their diet, I can't get paid for that. I mean, it's it's really, there's, there's some very creative ways, but I could send them to the emergency room for a $6,000 visit, um, but I can't tell them I can't get paid to help them cook a healthier dinner, you know, for the for the next week. Uh, that's that's a huge problem. That's a that's a that's that's the big. That's, I think that's the big. Uh, I think that's the biggest barrier of all. So uh, until that changes, 
I have a feeling that that you know all of these other issues are going to be relatively um, unchanged as well. Yeah. So if there are any billionaires listening to this and you want to start an insurance company that is it is intelligently based, you know, call us. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so what, t- tell me a little bit about what, um, the foundation, uh, nutrition studies foundation is doing. What are, what are the initiatives that you're, that you're overseeing and pushing out into the world right now? Well, right now we're really focused on online education. So we have our certificate program at eCornell, uh, through eCornell. Um, so the, the idea is sort of an Ivy League education where people actually get a plant-based certificate at the end um, that can help them with with whatever, uh, just either general knowledge or helps them round out their professional activities, uh, something along those lines. And it's been very successful. So our plant-based nutrition certificate has now graduated, you know, several thousand people. And um, we just released a healthy heart course also through eCornell. Uh, That's a shorter course. And... um, that's our main focus is are those two online courses. And, you know, along with that, we are doing this general education through our social media, through our website, through our writing, through our newsletter. Um, you know, we recently started doing a couple of newsletters, uh, webinars um, and communicating with folks that way. So we're generally just trying to put out high-quality science-based education. And our main effort is with our eCornell partnership. Um, in our certificate program. Gotcha. And and who, if people are listening to this and they're wondering, should I take the the course? Uh, you know, it's not it's not free. Uh, so much yeah. of online education, I think at this point we expect to be free. Just click on Khan Academy or YouTube and learn. What mm-hmm. are people? What who should who should think about uh, taking this the plant based certification course? And what what would it do for them? Well, I think that. Um, you know, those people who are interested in personal health, of course, can gain a lot. You know, one of the things that helps people change is knowing you consider a behavior change or consider a lifestyle. One of the things that helps people succeed in that is actually having the intellectual knowledge to know that it will help them, that this is a good change. And so uh, when you take our certificate program, you get really the, uh, uh, quite an extensive education and learning on some of the science behind how nutrition, how plant-based nutrition um, positively affects people. So there's a personal, there's a personal gain just for anybody listening who, who um, is interested in that personal improvement. That's a reason to take it. But also I think for those people who are interested in professional development or uh, professional improvement in some way, like anybody in any health profession of, of any kind at all that work with individuals, um, you know, I think this, I'm not, would never suggest that our certificate program replaces a traditional education or a, a traditional credential. Um, but for example, if you're a dietitian, uh, you may not have been exposed to some of the science and some of the, some of the plant-based focus that we have in our certificate program. And I think when you um, are interested in this area of nutrition, you really ought to have a little bit of edu- extra education in this little niche. And that's where we provide, um, some, I think, some very valuable 
professional enhancement for those people who are working with individual clients or patients. So, um, you know, it, 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 I think everybody, it, I think it could be benefit everyone, um, either from a personal health perspective or a professional perspective. I think that, um, uh, you know, the certificate program, and, and also just as an important thing, it's all online. There are instructors who help guide discussions, and those people um, who do enroll, it's, it's, there's no prerequisites. So it's not like you need to be, it's not like, you know, in college where you had to take Bio 101 and Biochem 212. <laughs> it's just, a, it's, just it, it's, it's targeted toward the lay person. So, uh, you know, with a little bit of um, education and work, as with any course, it's, it's really useful for just about anybody. Gotcha. So um, that's not your full-time job, though, right? Are you still in clinical practice? I am, yep. I'm a, a primary care doctor. I am on the adjunct, I have sort of an adjunct of faculty position at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry. I'm an instructor of clinical family medicine. Um, but mostly I'm a, a, just a practicing family doc. I uh, see patients um, at a at a family medicine uh, practice, a very uh, traditional university family based practice, and uh, uh, Rochester, New York. So, so what do you do when someone comes in with you know three lifestyle diseases and arthritis um, and you know everything you described, and you haven't had the nutrition discussion with them yet? How do you, how do you bring that up? Well, I assess where I try to assess where they are at and where they where they are coming from. So, you know, if someone is uh, really quite overweight or technically obese, you know, I ask them, you know, what, how do you how do you see your weight? Uh, is this a is this a problem? Um, or if they have diabetes, I ask, you know, what what have you done in the past in terms of nutrition? Uh, you know, how are you currently trying to improve your diet? And once I get a feel for where they're coming from, I, uh, then I can sort of push and around the edges. I can push, push in a little bit and say, you know, I, I, I'm not going to badger you, but um, I want to share with you some information that, for example, you could reverse your disease with uh, with a more with a whole food plant based diet, and I can describe the diet a little bit. And I say, are you? Does this sound like something that you're interested in? Is this something that you would like to know more about? Because then we can have follow up visits and um, have a more focused sort of dietary approach as we go forward in our partnership. And uh, you know, and then and then the patient sort of lets me know from there where they are uh, interested in going. So you can never. Even as a doctor, you will never succeed at hammering, um, you know, forcing people to change. It just will not. It just will not happen. Not with food. Food is too personal. Um, it, so you have to work with patients and start where they're at, and uh, and hopefully over time build a relationship and and encourage some meaningful change. Hmm. And um, I I assume it doesn't work with everyone, but it works with some, right? Correct. Yeah, I see. My patient panel is um, is just very traditional. Um, it's probably uh, 
uh, fairly poor, uh, a, a poorer slice of, of America than than average, uh, and it's um, uh, you know it's a challenge. A lot of people don't want to change, but certainly some people do, and they come back and they've lost weight, their cholesterol's way down, and um, and then we talk about how to how to improve even even further and how to how to maintain changes. Mm, got it. So what, one, one more thing I want to ask you about. Uh, when we last uh, got together to present, you had just received a, uh, a manuscript of your upcoming book. Uh, could you tell us about it? Well, it's called The Campbell Plan, and uh, it's really sort of the how-to uh, companion book to the China study at long last, uh, 10 years after the fact. It's... Um, it, you know, people people who I talk to about the China study who don't necessarily want to read 450 pages of the science, you know, they sort of say, okay, I'll, I'll try this. You know, what, what do I do? Um, I, I wanted a, pl- a plan or a text to be able to give them that uh, outlines exactly what you should do. It was what, one of the, what are the most common di- dietary questions? You know, so can I eat soy? What do you think about sugar? Does it all have to be GMO-free? Does it all need to be organic? And what about kids? You know, all of these. Oh, and what about gluten? What about wheat? These are the questions I hear all the time. So I wanted a a book that addresses those common questions, but it does it with a a sound scientific basis, um, the same we approached, we, we used in the China study. And then also gives people a very specific, you know, two-week plan um, to help them actually put this into practice and with a, with a full section of recipes. And actually, what I did with this book is a little, a little unique. I took, for the recipe section, I used um, recipe uh, donations. I actually went to my favorite recipe sources from the healthiest cookbooks I know. I contacted the recipe authors, and I said, hey, do you mind if I reprint you know, five to six of your recipes. Some are some are from websites, some are from books. With the idea being, uh, this is what I do in my clinic. I tell people, you know, these are my favorite recipe sources. Try them out. And um, if you're interested, you know, absolutely go buy those cookbooks. And so people can get, look it through the Campbell Plan and try out, you know, recipes from Lindsay Nixon or Kathy Fisher or Del Truth and then if, what if they like those? Then they have a, a sort of it gives them a little library right there of, of five or six recipe sources where they then can go, you know, get by their by those cookbook authors' uh, books. So it's it's the most practical book that I could possi- that I could think to write while being true to the science and um, you know also keeping it as readable as I could. So hopefully uh, it comes out in March and fingers crossed. Hopefully other people uh, also find it practical. <laughs> Great. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I know a lot of people are. How, how, I'm curious how this book you think is different based on your, your clinical experience, based on going out there and trying to get people to change. Because it sounds like the book is essentially if you were their doctor, how you would help right. them make the simplest, easiest, lowest commitment, lowest stakes um, transition to, uh, to, an, to a healthier way of eating. 
How, what, what did you learn? What have you learned from your patients that found its way into the book? Well, that's a, a good question, and there's a major, major uh, direction that I came out. I came at this topic because of my practice and because of my patients, and that is that I have an appreciation for behavior change and how difficult behavior change can be, and and how difficult it is for a lot of people that I never had an appreciation for before. I mean, a lot when you first sort of encounter it, and, it, and I, I had all the things lined up for me. I had a supportive family that, that told me how to do. I had the information laid out in front of me. Um, I had some uh, basic cooking knowledge, basic shopping knowledge, and uh, it was sort of, you know, like, that's easy. Let's just, just do it. But for most people, that's not the case. It's really not. And so there are behavior change techniques, you know, that predict success. So things like, um, you know, is this behavior change going to be consistent with your social norms? Is this going to be consistent with your self-image? Um, or do you have personal reasons for making this behavior change? Do you think it's really going to benefit you? Um, you know, those types of questions, those types of behavior aspects, are absolutely crucial. In fact, they're they're the most crucial. And so I really try to focus on on letting folks, letting the reader know uh, some tips and tricks about about those. Be and never it's never easy, but um, when you have a sense of how to tackle it, you know how to tackle the the how to tackle the transition from a behavior change point of view. I think it becomes even more powerful. So that behavior change aspect. Uh, really came into the book in a big time way because of my, my interaction with the with patients. Got it. So once, once the book comes out, what do you have, uh, plans, you have, you know, conferences or, and what, what else should we look for, uh, from you in 2015? <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's, it's developing. I don't have any particular uh, wild plans. I'm just going to keep plugging away at, at what I'm doing. Um, I'm hoping to, you know, integrate this ever more. Always, always my quest is to integrate this more into the traditional medical system. And so I have some projects at my sleeves where it's very, very early stage where I'm I'm really trying to um, integrate this more into the uh, traditional medical system. Uh, you know, in what by traditional medical system, I mean, you know, hospital or uh, institutional-based systems that have are, are paid by third-party payers, you know, insurance companies, and and uh, deal with normal everyday patients. <laughs> mm. So, so I'm that's what I'm. Um, I think that's coming down the road, hopefully, fingers crossed, some, some efforts and headway in that arena. Gotcha. Yeah, one more question came to me, and I'm thinking this is probably the wrong place in the interview to ask it because it's sort of complicated and maybe hardball or controversial. But, you know, so, so if, you're, if you're going out into the mainstream and you're not talking to the people who come to vegan conferences or plant-based health, you know, gatherings and tent revival meetings and all that sort of thing, there's obviously we're not going to go out and tell everyone you've got to be 100% whole food plant based or even 99 or 95%. So the question is, in your experience and in the research you've done, do you have a picture in your mind of like the dose response curve from like, you know, zero whole food plant based to 100? Like where? 
where the inflection points are, where where is good enough, or you know what what levels really make a difference. Is is that is that a, an even a reasonable question to ask? Well, I think it's a super common question, so absolutely it's a reasonable question, but I don't have a great answer, and I'm not sure I ever will. I mean, I think that there's evidence to suggest that the more whole food plant-based you get all the way to 100%, you know, the better, the better off you'll be. Um, but you know, I, I guess it depends on your starting point and your personal predispositions. I mean, for some people, uh, you know, going 90% of the way, is going to be just as good as going a hundred percent. Um, and, Really, it has to be something that people can maintain. And so and there's different aspects of the whole food plant-based diet, too. I mean, there's people who are uh, 100% strict with the animal foods, but they're not so strict with oil, sugar, white flour. And, you know, if you're eating a lot of processed vegan foods, um, that's not really quite whole food plant-based, even though they're 100% on the animals. There are some people who might be 100% on sugar, for example, added sugar, rather, and uh, maybe even oil or white flour, but they have a little bit of meat now and then, um, but essentially zero processed foods. Now, uh, what are the health effects of, you know, strain either toward in the, into the processed food land a little bit or strain into the meat, the animal food land a little bit? We just don't know. We, there's no way to say that, um, you know, 5% of your calories from the animal food kingdom, animal, animal food land, is, is going to be um, detrimental. I mean, we've never studied, never really had a great opportunity to study, for example, a diet that has 5% of its calories from animal foods and absolutely zero processed foods. Okay, so no added sugar, no added oil, um, no refined flour products. Um, you know, if you had a diet with zero processed food and you had meat as a flavoring uh, on your on your main dish at dinner every every night, you know, is that is that gonna is that gonna be detrimental to you? Um, I don't think anybody really has the evidence to say that 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 uh, that it will be, but. You know, whether it's 100%, 95%, 90%, um, the safe answer, and we know this from heart disease mostly, the safe answer is to say the closest you get, the closer you get to 100%. And some people need to get to 100%. The closer you get to 100%, the better off you'll be. But um, can you squeak by with a little less? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and actually, I'm, I'm thinking about the question... You know, that, that's the question that we get asked when we go and speak and people, you know, drive 400 miles and, and pay money to hear us. But what, when you go to a clinical population, um, you know, is, is there is going from like zero percent to 20 percent significant from from a, from a public health standpoint? Because I have I have friends, you know, that, that I, like, I look at their diet and I can't find like maybe I could find 5% whole food plant-based. Like maybe they have a little bit of the salad on their plate when they go out to the steakhouse or the, or the sandwich shop. But, but it's almost entirely processed foods to some extent and very heavy on, on meat and, and fatty meats and cheeses in particular. 
you know, is there is there evidence that from zero to twenty percent it actually makes no difference or it makes a huge difference? Is it is it all diminishing returns or are there is is there any information on on the the very opposite uh, yeah end? I. I uh... It depends on your outcome you're looking at, too. So it gets really complicated. I think absolutely from a public health point of view, I mean, if you implemented the USDA dietary guideline recommendations in terms of, you know, fruits and vegetable servings per day and calorie intake and fiber intake, can't take those three and you got them all from food, um, you would dramatically improve the health of the population. Because we eat so badly that even the most moderate recommendations are a dramatic improvement for most of our population, for much of our population. I mean, I, I speak to people who don't have like a single vegetable in three days, um, and that's normal. It's, it's not, you know, maybe the potato from the fried potato, french fries now and then. Um, and that, uh, so... So going from 5%, like you said, to 25% is, in fact, likely to be beneficial, I think, for for some of the more responsive conditions. So things like weight, um, diabetes, uh, maybe some hypertension, maybe cholesterol, some of the metabolic things um, respond quicker and easier. Uh, but there are other outcomes, for example, like cancer, where the, where that curve, that dose response curve you mentioned is going to look a little bit differently. I mean, I think there's good evidence to suggest that, you know, increasing your, increasing your fruit and vegetable intake by one serving a day from a very low starting point probably isn't going to do much for cancer. Um, or if you have the same balance of animal foods and plant foods, but you're, you lose, use less oil or you choose lower fat meats and you just cut down on oil, but otherwise it's, it's still lots of meat, it's probably not going to do much for cancer. So you can make this, the small changes from a public health point of view will make a, will make a difference in public health, uh, largely I think through the metabolic diseases, but for some outcomes, you probably need the, the inflection point of benefit, you know, where you start getting the benefit. It's probably when you, when you start getting closer to whole food plant-based mm. Oh, that's, I love that answer because it's, uh, it's, it's, it makes it very, very clear to me without, um, you know, simplifying or dumbing it down in any way. So I, I, really, right. I really appreciate because I, I hadn't been thinking about it in that way in terms of which, which condition am I talking about. And of course, having, having right. heard it, it makes perfect sense that, you know, mm-hmm. cancer probably takes a lot longer to, to develop in a lot of people. And so, um, right. you know, and, and I know people, the people I know, you know, well, socially, most of them kind of, you know, maybe are 30, 40, 50% whole food plant-based and they're getting mm-hmm. cancers. So. Right. Right. Uh, right. That's right. Well, Tom, this has been really fascinating. I'm so happy to, um, to get to talk to you and, and, and put it on the air. Because as, as, I, as I said, you know, when I heard you speaking at Kripalu a couple of times, you have a way of explaining things that really uh, gets past people's defenses or doesn't, doesn't raise their defenses in the first place. And so I think you're, you're a, a, a great voice, a great addition to, uh, to the movement for, for, food, for food sanity. And uh, I wish you every success going forward. 
Well, thank you, Howie. I appreciate it, and uh, I appreciate all your work, too. I think you're probably one of the, oh, one or two people, maybe my mom. I was thinking whether I include my mom. One of the, one of the few people in the world <laughs> that knows about writing a book with my dad. So <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll see you at the next support group meeting, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really appreciate all your work, and thanks for the opportunity. I, I have enjoyed it. Great. All right. Be well. Okay. Take care. You too. I hope, as always, that you've enjoyed this episode. I wanted to highlight the link to nutritionstudies.org. That's the uh, T. Colin Campbell Center for Nutritional Studies, and it's what we were talking about at the end of the interview about where people can go for the online education, both for regular people who just want to learn about eating better and for professionals who want some extra information, tools, confidence um, to help them help their own clients and patients uh, in, a, in a deeper way. And the, the thing about the Nutrition Studies plant-based certification from Cornell. It is from an Ivy League institution, which, which carries some weight in the real world. But if you think about it, how many people go and like take a course in, you know, auto mechanics, or, you know, carpentry, or just sort of useful life skills to help maintain the things around the house. And I would urge you to think about your own body in the same way. So if you've got a little extra money, a little extra time and a little extra curiosity and energy, you know, take a massage class or, or learn Tai Chi or so, something like that that maybe someone else would, would do as a professional um, education, continuing education. Or just do it for yourself, not to help anybody else, not to become a practitioner, but just for yourself and your, old family, your own family. You know, you don't need to become an auto mechanic to change your own oil, but you do have to learn how to change your own oil. So the uh, nutritionstudies.org course, and I've heard this from many people who have, who have gone through it, who are not professionals, is it really changed their lives and it really empowered them. Uh, it gave them the confidence. As Tom said, you know, confidence in the science is really a big factor for a lot of people making these transitions to a healthier diet and sticking to them. So check it out. It's a great course. Um, pretty much everyone I know who's gone through it raves about it. And you, you'll, you'll thank me. All right. Be well, my friends.